grad scientists and where to find them. Seriously misunderstood creatures. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Hello, hello, and welcome to uh, Grad Scientist and Where to Find Them. Uh, today, I welcome two uh, magnificent and extremely talented researchers again. Thank you, uh, thank you. First, I have, well, Josie. Josie, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I'm excited. Nice. Can you tell us a bit about yourself before we start? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, my name is Josie Gold, and I do research in the biomedical and biomedical engineering masters it's a master's of science in biomedical engineering okay which is interesting topic um i study ultrasound therapies for um sensitivizing cancers cool uh it's my it's my first year so i'm like halfway almost almost done with my first year of masters nice at university of montreal yeah that's true so first Already three podcasts in, I'm already going worldwide, right? <laughs> Moving from McGill to University of So Moira. diverse. Awesome, right? So uh, I'm glad to uh, expand the uh, lis- popul- listener population. Yeah. I hope you'll uh, you'll bring it uh, back to you. Yeah. Uh, and also have Ben. Ben, hello. Hello. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. So I'm also a master's student. I'm at McGill. Uh, my second year, I'm in physics, and I do research uh, with ultra-fast lasers. So we do material science, uh, science with uh, big, powerful, fast lasers. So pretty cool. It's nice and fun. Uh, a lot of ultras in, uh, in yeah, this yeah. podcast. Ultrasound, <laughs> ultra laser. It's ultra good. Ultra. <laughs> it's going to be an ultra good podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. All right. So who want, well, who wants to ultra start then? I think I can pass it off to Ben. Yeah, sure. You All started right. before, so All right, then. just a summary of what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I'm up at, uh, in the physics department and, you know, fourth floor, no windows lab because classic laser lab. And um, so we basically, uh, like chemists or material scientists, will grow materials and they'll say, okay, we think it'll be applicable to you know, this engineering problem, or we're interested in how the electrons or uh, defects in this material uh, have an effect on their properties. Um, the classic case is a lot of people are building solar cell, uh, solar cell materials right now, because mm-hmm. everyone wants to push solar up. So these scientists will grow in the materials and they'll send them to us, and we basically put it in front of our laser, uh, which gives us pulses that are a millionth of a billionth of a second long. And so we smack the material, you know, we pump it in some way, we excite it, uh, we push it out of equilibrium, and then we follow it very closely with fast time resolution to see how does this material relax, how do the excitations coalesce, and, you know, what happens on the, the fastest timescales that we can uh, know about. And it tells us a lot about um, kind of how the material is arranged and how all the different, you know, there's so many parts in an atom. You know, it's the smallest mm-hmm. thing, but there's so much that can go on as soon as you have two things interacting. And so, you know, there's a there's a host of techniques that can uh, give you a piece of the puzzle. And we're one piece of the puzzle, but uh, we really focus on the time resolution. And uh, we work with terahertz, which is kind of like really far infrared. And so we can kind of look at all of the low energy stuff that gets washed out when you work with optical frequencies or like UV. So we can couple into a lot of like whole molecular vibrations or atomic motions that are um, of interest to uh, a lot of folks when uh, electrons will couple to them. 
So like when you said like solar cells, like when you smack the laser and then they say, what what do you expect from the material? Like what do they ask you to find? Like how conductive it is? How? Yeah, that's exactly it okay. actually. So you know, for people who don't know, a solar cell works by absorbing light, creating electrons, and then siphoning those electrons out to a circuit. So you can you know work your stereo or your light bulb or your satellite or whatever you want to power with your solar cell. And so they yeah they're really worried about that conductivity and. Um, with terahertz spectroscopy, which is what we do, uh, we can actually frequency resolve over a pretty wide range. And so we can see the actual frequency response of the electrons that would be absorbed. And so we can say, okay, you know, we're seeing a lot of conductivity at this particular frequency. That may be, and, you know, maybe, you know, not a lot of conductivity at another frequency. And so we can kind of tell, okay, maybe the electrons are getting trapped or they're coupling to an atomic vibration at a particular frequency and that's slowing them down. Um, a lot of what people are interested in is the mobility. So we can say, okay, you know, the electrons don't move very far, so it's really hard to collect them and use them in a circuit. Mm -hmm. Whereas in another material, if they're whizzing around super fast, it's really easy to extract them before they get trapped again. So that's a specific case, but it's one that's, you know, really hot right now. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's super interesting. I've always liked knowing how things work. And light is, you know, it's the fastest probe that we have available to us. And, you know, the the amount of work that people have done to package light into really nice, you know, short, fast, broadband sources is, it's kind of one of those holes that once you go down, you can go down forever. And that's what I really like about it. Um, for better or for worse, it makes me feel... Uh, not stupid, but, you know, like there's a lot more out there. And I think yeah. that you guys probably share the same thing, that there's this kind of dichotomy of sure. you enjoy feeling like you don't know everything that's mm -hmm. out there. And, you know, it can flip back between, oh, this is a great feeling and this is a not great feeling. But it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, there's always something on the horizon, which is, which is really fun. Especially when you have, like, collaborators just sending you materials saying, oh, take a look at this and put it in front and see what happens. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. I was, I was wondering, are you, so you're doing, do you have a thesis-based? It uh, is thesis-based, yes. Right. So. Oh, you want the specifics. How do, well, and I was just wondering how, how actually this articulates into a thesis, because the, like, it sounds like it's more, uh, sounds the, like the, the, the first thing that comes to my mind, I'm, I'm sure I'm literally going to butcher everything you've done by saying that, but it sounds a bit like quality control, sort of. It can uh, definitely be used for that. And I have a lot of my friends who work more towards the industrial side of things, okay. and they do exactly that, where they use their terahertz beam they look at the conductivity of uh, someone I know is doing like printed circuits, printed electronics. Okay. And instead of sticking a four-point probe or your multimeter on the electronics and ruining them or destroying them, um, they can use a beam. But to answer your first question, um, the my thesis is really going to be uh, building a new instrument or a new type of experiment that we can do. Okay. And then I'll be staying to do my PhD, and the PhD will more be the... I say I want. I don't want to say the actual science, but you know the application of this new <laughs> okay. instrument to the new materials. So right now I'm kind of in the weeds of trying to pull signal to noise out properly and all do all the alignment on the table and do all of the, you know, the I guess on table work as I call it. And then hopefully once I finish my thesis, fingers crossed, on time and get it working, then I'll start to do the okay, put the sample in front of it and do my measurements. But um, in particular, my thesis is going to be taking kind of our, you know, the main technique that we do, which is terahertz spectroscopy. You know, you pass a terahertz pulse through the material, you see how it changes, 
And based on that, you can tell what's going on inside of it. And I'll be using um, circular polarized light. So you can have light of different polarizations. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's mm-hmm. orientation. And you can also have it traveling in kind of a helical shape. Yeah. Yeah. And that extra, I guess, you know, shape, it's it's an addition of momentum, basically, allows you to couple into different transitions and look at different properties of the material, just like rotating a linear polarization would. So that's a... I, I fear I'm straying a little far into jargon, but basically there's a lot of really interesting stuff that you can start to do with circular polarized light just because it couple, it can couple into the spin degree of freedom of electrons. And there's, you know, once you get down to two dimensions, a lot of uh, weird stuff starts to happen. And that's what a lot of uh, like our theory friends are working on trying to understand and so we're hoping to, you know, kind of build this experimental setup that can start to test some of the interesting 2D physics that is coming out of these theory groups. So it's like a full-on, uh, full-on chain, like from I would theory say there, there's, to uh, there's quite a plan. To... And I mean, you know, as experimentalists, you know, when we see some kind of like really heavy simulation work, we know it's you know out of our our area of expertise. So. One of the things I really like about McGill in particular is the physics department here is so much bigger than I was used to at my <laughs> undergrad. And so, okay. you know, if there's something, there's likely either someone there doing it in-house or, you know, there's a friend of a friend who knows how to do it. So it's really exciting to just be able to say, oh, this is applicable to XYZ, you know, two doors down the hallway. And then you can chat to them. And um, it's just really exciting to be around so much research. All right. Is that... Maybe yeah, I, I mean, I've more? said my spiel. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Josie, maybe yeah, it's your sure. turn to uh, yeah. show with us your research. <laughs> I just came from back home, so I have like my spiel ready. Everybody asks what like what you do and what you're doing with your life, and oh, I have to like yeah. synthesize oh, yeah. it into like a five minute speech because they get bored as soon as you start I'm speaking. Saying, that's probably oh, more course. stressful than this because you actually <laughs> have to justify yourself to people you already know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so um, I work at an ultrasound lab. Mm-hmm. So my specific thing is uh, theragnostics, which is therapy and diagnostics. It's just like together. Together, uh, in ultrasound, there is these things called microbubbles. You, they're like very tiny micro, very tiny bubbles, uh, two microns in size. If that helps, I don't know what SI units. If SI <laughs> people are listening, I mean, microns ho- is fine. Hopefully, a lot of people are listening, <laughs> so there should be a, a few. Uh, people interested yeah um so yeah um tiny bubbles you inject into the bloodstream and you put an ultrasound to it they've been used for contrast agents for example with the when you expose the micro bubbles to ultrasound they resonate and they create a backscatter and and signal that's like way higher than normal so for example for imaging veins which are really close to water which doesn't reflect any ultrasound they're really really nice so if you put micro bubbles and then you try to image it with ultrasound, you'll see all the veins like glow, okay. basically. So that's what they've been used normally, and that's what um, the FDA has been using them for, for like 20 years. But uh, more recently, in the past five to 10 years, there's been a, um, like a therapeutic side to bubbles. So you basically, you inject the bubbles, and then you pass the ultrasound beam, and they resonate. And when they resonate, they hit against like the vessel walls, and they like create little holes that like they don't the cells don't die, but they create little holes in the cells, okay. and that has led to um, 
a therapeutic response or like a physiological response from your own body. So that causes the vessels to dilate in that area where the bubbles resonated. Or it releases like ATP or other biomarkers that uh, are good for enhancing the immune response. So what we're trying to do is basically using this physiological response to sensitize tumors to different therapies. So for example, if the tumor has more oxidation and more blood flow to it, and it gets exposed to radiotherapy, then it dies faster. It's also, uh, there's some, it's, this is not my area of expertise. I'm a mechanical engineer in the background. So um, when they talk about antibodies and targeting with, the, um, with antibodies, okay. at some point in the line, if the cells release ATP, something happens and they send um, antibody responses. And that also can help cure cancer. That, that point on how it, cancer, I have no idea how it works. Just magic. Let's just say it's magic. It's boom. <laughs> but magic is mostly magic. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. And so what I'm interested in is what parameters, ultrasound parameters or bubble parameters, um, do you need to optimize a certain response? So I have two other people that are doing, like one is doing the prevascular project, which is opening up the vessels and making them dilate. Mm -hmm. And another person is doing the ATP release. And my, my project would be to basically find a way to test a lot of ultrasound parameters. So like frequency, pressure, uh, or bubble parameters. So like the size of the bubbles, the concentration of the bubbles, and to see which, which parameters lead to the best outcome. Okay. So for example, if you want to image ATP, release so you would have like a little setup you would have like some cells then you pass like some micro bubbles then you hit it with the ultrasound therapy they resonate they create little holes and they release atp and then you can image that atp using bioluminescent compounds and the whole point would be what parameters gives us gives us the best signal the best signal being like the correct amount of atp or like or... the most amount of atp mm -hmm. right so there's like no, there's no upper bound for well, the upper bound would be all the ATP that's in the cell. Yeah, right? okay. oh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. But you don't want you don't want to kill the cell. Mm -hmm. So at some point, you also have to think about I'm gonna do this, and it's gonna release a lot of ATP, and then like five minutes later, you can pass a dye and check if the cells are alive or not. So I think it's like a conjunction of mm -hmm. hey, let's release all the ATP, but not kill all the cells. I think that's where your work differs than mine is that we can just totally blast something. <laughs> we don't have to worry about what happens afterwards, whereas you have to have a living thing at the end as well. Yes. That's really interesting, though. So what's the, the is there like a depth profile that you can realistically image? And does the bubble size or frequency affect how deep within tissue you can probe or release stuff with? So that, that's a normal question in ultrasound. Like, mm -hmm. yes, the deeper you go, the less ultrasound pressure there is. Sure. Right. That's why um, I have your, I don't know if you've seen an ultrasound machine, but it's basically like a microphone. You have like a little set of um, it's basically like gains. Mm -hmm. And when you image it, you can like modify the gain depending on the depth. OK. Oh, so you can choose what depth you're interested in looking at. Yes. Already. You can. Okay. But that's a that's an ultrasound technique that's already been. OK, so your bubbles don't have any bearing on that. You can no. put bubbles wherever. Okay. Yes. So my second question was, how do you get the bubbles in there? You inject them. Okay. You just like, and they're everywhere now. Hmm. And then they get processed through the, the liver, I believe. Don't quote me on that. 
So how do you how do you uh, actually test the parameters? Do you actually do that on human subjects? No, not not not. We're not even close to human subjects. Um, the parameters that the other two people are testing are on mice. Okay. Mm. Literature reviews normally when when they do an experiment like this, they choose like the parameters on the edges. So like very low frequency and very low pressure and very high frequency and very high pressure. And they just say like, oh, these two, like this one worked better than this one. Okay. Right. And we've, we've had some data that shows that some parameters work. We don't know exactly like why and what are the best parameters. So what the mice people do is they just test it and see if they have a response. And what I'm trying to do, because the luminescent compounds are very expensive. Uh, mm -hmm. Mice are expensive. They're also like alive, and you don't want to kill that many. Yeah, yeah. So I'm creating like a little, we call it like a microfluidic chip. It's basically like a little piece of plastic that has like a little channel in it, and you can inject cells, and they would like attach to the plastic and grow. You let them grow for like a day or two, and you can see the cells, and then you would inject. You would have like fluid flow, and then you have like the ultrasound transducer, and just click so it's like a little plastic chip and hopefully at like we want to make it so in one picture you have like different parameters mm -hmm. so for example you have you can do a lot more experiments with like one chip Okay. Yeah. And I was to say, it sounds like from what you said, a lot of people have been testing what I'd call like an edge case, so like really low yeah. pressure, really low temperatures. And you're trying to fill in all of this, I don't know how many parameter space, but a lot. A, a yeah, lot. you're trying to do some sort of optimization with all of these yes, different parameters. Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Wow. That's yeah. a lot of space to fill in. That is a lot of space. Do you have I'm an really, idea? I'm really excited for all the cool I graphs. Mean, yeah, right? <laughs> the visualization is probably going to be nuts. Oh, I'm excited for that. Do you have... <laughs> I don't know if this is pushing too far forward. Do you have any idea of like, is there, does it seem that there's one parameter that seems there's to a affect the most? Yes. Um, they, 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 normally like one megapascal of that, but like there's, there is a parameter, there's a certain frequency. Frequency, um, I don't think it's going to affect that much because the bubbles, depending on the size, they resonate at different frequency, right? So... And they're coupled variables. There. Exactly right. So if you have like a uh, really uniform microbubbles that are like this size, they will all resonate at that certain frequency. Mm -hmm. And then it's just a question of playing around with how much they expand and contract. So that would be like the pressure, the amplitude. Yeah, and how if they're like really tight together and there's like a lot of them really tight together, there might be some like nonlinear. Mm -hmm. But. That's nice that you just kind of get to go in and turn knobs and see if yes. anything interesting happens. Because that's yes. what I like is yes. when it's not, oh crap, what's wrong? Let me turn knobs to fix stuff. It's yes. just let's see what happens. It's very, that's it's very exploratory. Stuff. You yeah. know, like, and also, I think that's what's exciting about a lot of research is like you don't get into research to like do the same experiment eighty times that your supervisor has already done for twenty five years. Yes. You want to do stuff that feels new. Yeah. Uh, one thing I was also wondering is there. Um, yeah, and the way that you you select parameters, etc. Can that is that specific to what you're trying to diagnose or to to treat, or are so, you not even on that stage yet? So yes. So the whole point of um, diagnosing ATP, and then that's for the as I said, there's ATP releasing is some sort of signaling factor mm -hmm. to the immune response. No idea how that works. ATP, <laughs> yes, immune, no idea. Okay. And then for the vas um, the dilation, 
uh, we're exploring with nitrous oxide, which again is um, is involved in signaling downstream. There has been people that do. There have been people that do it just to just to check if like what the like what the single interaction between like one bubble and one cell. Mm-hmm. So like they have like a one cell that's fixed, and then you like bring the little bubble in like through cool cool things, and then you make it sound, and then they like image it with fluorescence. Hopefully, I don't know, maybe a laser. Sure, why not? <laughs> and collaboration, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been there's been studies about that and like how how the hole forms and how um, things rush in and how things rush out. There's also been studies on opening the blood brain blood brain barrier, the BBB, and that has been actually in humans already. So people have been doing that in humans, okay. opening up the blood brain barrier. Don't quote me. It might be monkeys. Okay. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. I'll add a... Uh, can, can, you, can you just say the opposite so I can also... I can edit out cool. the one that cool. is the good one? Yes. So uh, there's been testing in monkeys. Pause. There's been testing in humans where they open the blood-brain barrier and they get, um, they get um, medicine through. So like if you have a brain tumor, it's really hard to get medicine to the brain because... Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't want to have that many chemicals in there, but they've been used for opening up the blood-brain barrier as well. Mm. So there has been studies of doing the therapeutic side, but we're interested in coupling it. So, for example, with the immune response, or with radio with radiotherapy. I would say it sounds very similar to other like targeted quote-unquote medical things like with the nanoparticles yes, it's, and it's, cancer where you put them where you want it you excite them somehow they do their job and then they kind yes. of get processed down the line it, it's you're completely correct there's mm. like carbon nanotubes that do that or mm-hmm. there's like uh nanoparticles that do it coupled with mri oh yeah the thing is ultrasound is cheap wide and most of them what what the cool thing about ultrasound is that uh you can see right so you like you take the ultrasound and you're like mm-hmm. okay cool there is a tumor. I can see it right there in the screen. I want to sensitize this part. Click a button. Boom. Sensitized. Go to radiotherapy. Let's say with everything else, you're kind of just in the dark and praying Ex- or doing something chemically exactly. to have it attached. But yeah, having the same tool that you use to solve your problem and view the problem, I guess in some ways that's kind of similar to us. Yeah. Is yeah. I use a tool to look at something, but we all can also extract all of this. You know, yeah. very beautiful precise information from it yeah we're not so different after no, all no, <laughs> it's just a different type of ultra mm-hmm. exactly <laughs> all right so i think uh it's time to move on to the second part of this podcast oh boy um for this one uh, it's gonna be a bit a bit of a, of a looser subject i guess i wanted to maybe do a little um how do you say bilan in, in english like, like resume sort of like Summary. That's a summary. There you go. Summary. A little summary of uh, our very early research career, let's say, because we're all in in the very like early stages. Josie, your first year, first year. and we're both second years yeah. at Penn. Um, well, so first, first question that I'll ask just to start it off. Um, can you tell me where where exactly you are in, in like in the progress of your project? Early stages. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're still we're still like figuring out like the the little bits and pieces on like how to grow cells, how to image them, how to image the what what's the best compound to use that gives us the best thing. So it's still pretty 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 early in the 
mm-hmm. data collection processes. Do you have some sort of like proposal written already? Yeah, I could say that. <laughs> it's in the works. Okay. It's, it's due soon. Okay. You when? Like March 21st, I think. So what are you doing in a podcast uh, right now instead of working? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate it. <laughs> but uh, maybe yeah. you have better to do. No, it's uh, it's it's there. Okay. The, it, the bases are the bases are there. Okay. That so because like for your masters you have you have to actually do a, some sort of thesis some sort of like project I, written project. I do have to have a thesis at the end of the uh, oh. memoir. Okay. Yeah. yeah. True. Your yeah EDM yeah. has a, yeah yeah a French stuff. I'm polishing off my French skills. That's pretty cool. How did did you know did you know French before coming nope. here? So you just like I still don't know French. French. You still don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, UDM, uh, I have something to announce. Uh, you students. No, no, they know. He's a fraud. They know. <laughs> they know. I don't know French. I also the lab also works in French. So, so you're you're gonna get good quick, hopefully. Well, yeah. I've, I've been. It's been a year. I like. I feel like I'm okay. Like, knowing Spanish helps. Yeah. So like I can mm-hmm. read, and um, I can't write, but I can read and I can understand most of it. It's just I can't talk. Like, it's getting there. Don't worry. How about you, uh, Ben? Where are you at, approximately? Yeah, so, I guess I don't know if it's the case for you, but do you also have courses that you have I to do. take? I do, I yeah, do. I'm so, so ready to get to get done with them. I right? just wanted to research. Yeah, so my first year, like, the first semester was, I took three courses and they were pretty heavy. So, like, I was still very much learning my way around the lab and, like, learning what buttons to push and what not to touch. Um, but I guess my project propter kind of crystallized over the summer. And so that's okay. when I had gotten enough prerequisite knowledge that it made sense for me to start doing that. Um, and so me and my supervisor, we kind of said, okay, this is what is kind of exciting for both of us. And we think that we are in a position in terms of, you know, people and money and objects to, to be able to test. And so basically from the end of the summer... I was helping one of the other students write a paper, which is hopefully going to be accepted soon, fingers crossed. Um, And so then, yeah, right. Uh, Then I moved on to, I guess, doing the... What I find is that, you know, you can plan and plan and plan and plan, but once you get on, again, I'll say on the table, um, you really start to figure out what will will screw you up. Uh, It feels good to be able to just, you know, read something because there was this period where... It was like every every week or, you know, we'd come up with some new problem that would totally change the design. We have to redesign the entire beam line. So just to have things kind of secured down on the table feels really good. But yeah, so it's it's in the building phase. And then, you know, for my thesis, it's pretty much going to be the literature review and motivation of why we're building this mm-hmm. and then how it was built and then kind of just more, I'd say like testing and characterization. So Here's the signal to noise. Here's the amount of you know polarization difference that we can detect. Maybe I'll throw in a preliminary sample um, and say, okay, we see circular dichroism. Great. Or I'll put something in that we don't expect to see it in and say, look, we don't see it. I don't have any artifacts, and I'm not going to bullshit you when I <laughs> when I actually publish something. And then hopefully that will allow me to get all of the testing out of the way. Once my PhD starts, I can just start, you know, doing the science, as it were, okay. and so testing samples. When is when is like, when do you stop collecting data and start writing your like the actual thesis? Yeah, so I mean, it really depends on how long it takes you to go from the, I guess, designing mm-hmm. to testing. Because 
seemingly with with I don't know if it's all of physics, but you know the research that I see in our lab, it'll be like you know weeks or months of designing and actually being on the table and getting things aligned and working. And then there's like, okay, we get it to work. And then you get like three or four weeks to collect your data while it works and everything's, you know, the stars align, so to speak. And then you write that up for like months afterwards. So for us, it's a very condensed data acquisition process of the really huge parts are the designing and building and the analysis and the data taking is kind of this whirlwind where yeah. everything lines up and you're able to do it. Yeah, I'm excited so, for that one. Yeah, but <laughs> it looks like that you're also able to test things intermittently a lot yes. easier where you can take data over a longer period of time. So I'm just waiting for the point where I'm able to see what I expect and then I just assume that I'm just going to sleep in the lab for like a month. I'm definitely excited because... You know, that one moment where everything works or like even just one thing works, yeah, yeah. it totally makes up for like the two weeks beforehand of you beating your head against the wall. It's just yeah, like yeah. the best feeling. Sure. What's the, the sort of like hardest uh, part of of what you're doing, of your work uh, that has been giving you troubles and is still giving you troubles now? Is there like anything that you still need to improve on? I feel like, especially my project, it's very collaborative between like, um, so like I have one one professor's graduate student that's helping me like grow the cells and work with the cells. And then I have another professor's graduate that's helping me like image it. And then I have like my own professor that's helping me like guide it. So I think like mixing between like this one and this one and then this one and then like you're like, cool. So yeah. you're almost like people wrangling is a part of your position of having the right people at the right time so that you can do what it's you need more to like, do. It's more like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this with this, this person and then like, oh no. That something's wrong. So I'm like, okay, wait, let me go back to this person. Like, why is this wrong? <laughs> It's not working. And they're like, oh, should do this. I'm like, okay, cool. And then I go back to the other one. And you're like, it still doesn't work. I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> so I think that's like, that's been like my challenge. Uh, the thing is also like, I'm still taking classes. So I have to divide my time between like making tests and organizing and doing tests and like doing midterms and doing projects. So I still, I'm, I'm just ready to finish class. And then as just you said, in the summer, it. as soon as like, as soon as you have like an entire summer to work on your project, mm-hmm. it like gets so much better. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Do you actually feel like the classes you're taking are like helpful for what you're doing currently? Yes. Yes. I have, like I, I chose them and I think that I was in engineering. I never got to choose my classes. They were just like, okay, you're just going to do this class. I'm like, okay, cool. This sounds perfect. <laughs> But then, like, um, I got to master's and they were like, oh, what, what are you going to take? I'm like, I want to take an imaging class. I want to take a microfluidics class. I want to take, like, a clinical research class. So, so yeah, I think choosing your classes and adapting them to the research mm-hmm. I've been doing really helps. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I was just wondering, like, is it, is it normal in, in what you're doing to have to do, like, all the classes at the beginning? And then the research, because uh, no I mean, yeah, I'm more used to just like uh, sort of like have one class a semester, depending on what I'm currently working on. Like that's I, do, I would do like a stats class as soon as I'm ready to do data analysis or uh, oh, something like that. Because we are the exact opposite. Like you said, okay. it's more often that people try to fit, you know, five classes into their first year, three and two or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm taking one class now just because uh, I was like double booked last semester Or otherwise, I would have been done, and it would have been nice to just be able to focus on research. But yeah, at least for uh, me, 
in physics, it's much more common to shove all your classes into the first couple semesters. That's interesting that you kind of spread them out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only person who does. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a, like, a couple of friends who do that as well. But I mean, it also depends. How long is your master's? Uh, well, right now, so I mean, I'm in my master's, which is two years, but I am currently transferring into the PhD program. Got it. So. Is it like a fast track where yeah, you don't exactly. get okay? Yeah. Exactly. So it's uh, I'm actually doing my exam in a month. Oh, good so luck! What are you doing? Recording a podcast? <laughs> you know what? Yeah, turn the tables. <laughs> you know what? Oh, how uh, the tables turn. <laughs> I don't have an answer for this <laughs> uh, I, because no, I started no, this. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah. Good luck. Technically, like I've been I've been knowing that for a while, so it's as if I was sort of in my first year of PG. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Kind of already. I guess building off of the the same initial question of like what's what's difficult now, mm-hmm. um, I just find that you know you're only you're only gonna find the next I'm not gonna say problem but the next you know obstacle ahead of you once you do it and I just had to get used to because I'm one of those people who I'm not gonna say perfectionist but like I like to know everything before I start like I want to know you know I'm a planner you know if I go on a trip I'm, I get all the details lined up before so I don't have any surprises but I found that that mindset is very unrealistic for research where you're never going to be able to know you everything plan to a certain extent you know I like, agree but I would find myself getting bogged down in like but I don't know what if what if what if what if what if what if and you know at some point you just have to say screw it I'm going to go in I'm going to try something and then I'll know Even if it's an issue, I'll know yeah. that issue and I can attend to it. So for me, I think the biggest thing was that like kind of mindset flip of going from a, oh, in class, you know, you read the textbook. And everything's solved. And, and yeah. you know, you know, there's an answer at the end of the day where in research, you know, you don't know if that answer is out there. And the only way it's going to come is if you put in the, the groundwork and, you know, use your resources, talk to the technicians, talk to other students, talk to other professors, you know, yeah. go in and do really deep, weird Googling to try to find some manual <laughs> online or what have you. But it's, it's, I think it's fun now, but like the transitionary period was like, there was like this like, oh my God, like, I feel like I'm, you know, you feel like you're the wrong person for the job because you're a student in a researcher's position. Yeah. But then you kind of get the sense of, okay, now I feel like I'm transitioning to thinking more of as a researcher and just saying, you know, we're going to try it and we'll address things as things come up. Yeah, I don't, I, I think it's, I don't think we'll have time to do a game. The game, the game sucked anyway. <laughs> uh, I literally, I said I was going to do games at the end of every episode and then whoa, I realized whoa. that 40 minutes ago. And uh, Yeah, I heard your podcast and you're like, oh, it's going to be a tradition. And All right, fine. I'll, yes. I'll do it. Let's just do it and we'll see. Convinced it's, you, it's man. I convinced you. Relatively bad. This is uh, podcasting after hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I, w- I just figured, I was like, well, we have, for once, we have someone from UDM. So let's do a little trivia about facts about UDM and McGill. Cool, Boy. I don't know any. So <laughs> I'll, I'll just tell you stuff. I'll, I'll give you a fact and you have to tell me if this fact is related to McGill or... Oh, to- oh so we're I describing like it to the place. Yeah. Exactly. So if I say, for example... Uh, Uh, which which university has most students? UDM. I'd say UDM. That's very true. Yeah, I thought I actually thought it, it was McGill. Uh, no, UDM is huge. Yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah, it's like sixty six thousand. Oh also, my god! 000. I didn't know it was that big. I was also surprised. Like um, I was McGill, and then I went to UDM, and they're like, "Oh yeah, it's huge." I'm like, "Oh, cool." Because it's also like three affiliated, right? It is. It's like, it's like Polytechnique and, and UDM. Yeah, because my undergrad university was 
3,500 students. So going to McGill was a tenfold oh. increase. And then if UDAM is twice as big as that, that's nuts. <laughs> that's pretty, <laughs> Holy it's huge. moly. Second fact. This one's easy. Justin, Justin Trudeau studied there. Is that McGill? I'd say McGill. Yeah, it's McGill. So I saw actually, um, I think he studied in UDM but did not graduate. Oh, oh he's not. a dropout. Because oh. I know he speaks French. And yeah, but, I mean, he's <laughs> from Montreal. He's from Montreal. Oh, uh, which one is it? Which university is the oldest? McGill. I'd say McGill. By how? By how? How many years do you think? Fifty. Uh, I was gonna say around there. Damn, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, eighteen twenty-one for McGill. Eighteen seventy-eight. Oh wow! For, uh, well, didn't didn't so McGill like, come before Montreal? Like McGill existed before Montreal did. Is that right? No, no. Montreal is three seventy-five, three seventy-six years old. So sixteen. Yeah. Fifteen ninety. Mathematics. Uh, <laughs> I'll bring. I'll bring. Quick I'll bring maths. mathematics researchers next time, so they'll do it better than me. Um, <laughs> all right. So where do you think was first uh, discovered in quotation marks uh, the concept of stress? Stress, like, like stress, material me- stress, mechanical stress, no, or orga- people stress, or- organism stress. Oh, I'd say UDM. It's called general I was going to say McGill. Mm-hmm. It's UDM. It's UDM. Hey. Yeah, 1936 by Hans Selye. Selye. I don't know. Something like that. Sorry. Sorry it's okay. for, to his descendants. Uh, yeah. They're definitely so, listening to the podcast. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure, I'm sure. I'm sure multiple UDM students discover stress on a daily basis oh, yeah. there too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Miguel as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Hopefully, no, not hopefully. Sadly, sadly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not very good in English. Uh, now, where was invented a surgical method to treat epilepsy? I'll say Miguel. Yeah, Miguel. That's uh, Wilfred Wilfred Penfield. Oh, oh, like, like Doctor Pinefield. Doctor Pinefield. The Doctor Pinefield. I love. I love realizing that like street names are not random and they're like actual people. Mm. Yeah. Penfield. He's the founder of the Montreal Neurological Institute. Oh, so the big building. I was gonna say. I was um, thinking it might have been McGill because you're like a neuro adjacent person and you would have known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like uh, one of the big big names in in neuroscience. Let's stay in research. Uh, who discovered the link? between dopamine and Parkinson's disease. So the fact that Parkinson's disease was uh, the, the sort of like consequence of a la- lack of dopamine. Mm. Huh, I don't know that. I'll say UDM. Ah, uh, McGill. Let's get some points here. Uh, it's UDM. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's André Barbeau in 1961. Oh, so UDM does a lot of cool stuff, you know? Yeah, no, they, they do. about McGill all the time, but... Uh, <laughs> though, which one has most Nobel Prizes? McGill. McGill. Yeah, by far nine nine Nobel prizes versus one. I was say I know at least I know at least one because Rutherford's there. Yeah, and I'm fairly certain he won a Nobel prize. Yeah, Canada's got a lot of Nobel prizes. Like we, uh, a Canadian physicist just won the Nobel prize in physics this past year. Oh really? So, yeah. Oh, she, that's cool. She, it was her first paper she published as a graduate student, and it's the no same way. stuff. She won a no. No. Oh, it was her and her supervisor who shared the prize. That's so good. That, you it's know crazy. And it's the same technique that I use in my lab to amplify our pulses. So it was super cool that it was, I was in Canada and I was a Canadian scientist. <laughs> and it's the thing that I use that makes my research possible. That's dope. Won the Nobel Prize. So I was like waving the laser flag and I was uh. like, yeah, laser jocks, let's go. We got the Nobel Prize. <laughs> That's so cool. That's actually kind of fun. 
Man, undergrad goals, no man. Damn, now I feel super yeah, inadequate. Yeah, so dumb. I was like, <laughs> yeah, your first paper as a grad student, yeah, and like, it's just <laughs> sitting around, and then it nets you the Nobel Prize. But sometimes it happens like that. Sometimes you know, yeah. it's right place, right time, right person, perfect storm. Yeah. That's so cool. I wonder what you do, like, where you go from there. Like, I mean, Nobel <laughs> Prize is sort of like consecration. Like, once you've got the Nobel Prize, yeah. okay, so. Now what? Next? Should I get another one? <laughs> Wait, then go into music or something. I don't know. Yeah. Dude, her, her speaking schedule has got to be, like, crazy yeah, now. Sure. Her it's inbox so probably just exploded. Yeah. Or she can read it while the laser warms up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. Last one. If I tell you, Fides Splendid is Scientia. What? Is that like the motto? Maybe. <laughs> so yeah. UDM? Yeah. I was going to say UDM, yeah. Because that probably, doesn't sound like my Probably guess. terrible uh, Latin. I'm sorry to all people who speak Latin. Uh, <laughs> all four. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all, Thank you all four for listening to yeah, the podcast, mm-hmm, that's too. That's true. Indeed. Thanks <laughs> yeah. for tuning in, folks. Yeah. Among um, the, the very many fans of this podcast, the best for now. It means... I, I, I didn't even note down what it meant. I think it means... Uh, it. It shines by uh, its uh, faith and science. Oh, cool. I think it's pretty I like cool. that. Against oh, cool. Miguel, which is Grandes Kunt Augta Labore. Yeah, German? Or also Latin? No, it's still Latin. Mm. Uh, it's uh, everything grows by work. Huh. Uh, and I think on that happy note, We're everything grows by work and yeah. shine by your science. I think it's time to yeah. say goodbye. Perfect. Well, goodbye, everybody. Yeah. Goodbye, thank everybody. you for thank having you s- me. Well, thank you yeah, so much for, for having uh, me. This is great. For coming. Uh, it's cool. I'm I'm really glad to have uh, people from fields that I, I understand nothing about. And so now I feel like I understand a little bit more. Yeah, it's important uh, to, you know, talk to people outside of your field. Sure. And that's, you know, part of the reason why grad school is so nice is because you get to, you know, for me, it's I get to talk to other physicists, but also I get to talk to people totally yeah. outside of my field. Yeah, that's why I... That's that's why I started this this podcast so uh, so that we can have a large platform to talk you Indeed. know without without uh, constraints or anything. It's also so very if fun you want to, like, to be. What? It's also very fun to like see like the glimmer in the researcher's eye when oh, you really? ask like mm-hmm. when you ask like a really deeply question like, like mm-hmm. deep questions like you see oh, their mouth watering. Oh yeah, let me tell you about my research. <laughs> yeah, best feeling. So if you want to have this feeling. You can also uh, be part of this podcast uh, by signing up on the PGSS website. So I have been very evasive about uh, where where to find it because I didn't know in the previous recordings. But uh, if you go uh, just on the PGSS webpage and you scroll down, you're, you're going to see a, a little icon that says podcast, grad scientist, and where to find him. You click on it, there's all the episodes, and at the bottom there's going to be a form that you can fill out. Uh, so feel free to fill it out. I'll contact you. Uh, already have a lot of responses, so Ooh, they might or so might popular. not be uh, a wait list. Um, but, Exclusive uh, club. I know. Uh, no, it's it's very open. It's just gonna maybe a long wait list, uh, and a lot of people that want to talk about really cool things. So uh, to again, who would have thought researchers wanted to talk about their research? What? Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, you uh, you would think that they're just you know these very seclusive, like you know, yeah. all by themselves, but no. We're a family, guys. <laughs> and uh, that's it. All right. Well, you see you guys go. later. Uh, yeah. And uh, goodbye. See you. Bye.